We had 100,000 full-risk capitation managed care lives. And what you could do in that setting was so much more fulfilling and wonderful than what you could do if you were just battling it out with the medical staff, sort of, you know, bunker by bunker. And then I really saw the option for technology. And once I started working in that in about 95, 96, I kind of never looked back. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Molly Coy comes from a family who is obsessed with innovation and has a high tolerance for risk. They also had a history of commitment to anything that would disrupt unjust social paradigms. Molly has packed all of these qualities and more into a healthcare career marked by making real change, not just talking about it. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan. We're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa. Yes, David. <laughs> um, what's the biggest change you're seeing these days in the healthcare world right now? I, you know, I think the biggest change I'm seeing is the vertical integration that's going on between different kinds of players. So you see... Uh, like the Walmart acquisition in process of Humana and uh, Humana's purchase of Kindred, you know, this whole idea of vertically integrating the entire front access of medicine and all the way up to the insurance side, but without the hospital, which I think is really interesting. And we're seeing some of these repeated, you know, these kinds of models with um, United and the work they've done and the acquisitions they've made with uh, the combination of Aetna and CVS, which will be relevant to talk about today. So where does this go in the limit? I think it's going to limit the opportunity of the hospitals. I think if you control the entire front door and directive, you know, potential of where people go to access medicine, the hospitals become commodities. I think it's going to be really tough for them to keep up. Well, maybe we'll get to some of that in today's show. Uh, Well, Molly Coy has worked on all sides of the healthcare system. She spent many years in governmental leadership roles. She's been on both the payer and provider side of the table and both academic and commercial environments. But she has had a consistent theme throughout all of this to make healthcare accessible and relevant for underserved populations and to use technology and data to accelerate that outcome. Today, Molly is actively engaged with numerous companies, having served on the boards of and in various capacities with companies addressing underserved populations. And she's also a 15-year board member of Aetna and now an uh, entrepreneur in residence at Avia. Molly, welcome to Tectonics. Thank you. As someone I've known for a couple of decades now, uh, and I consider a great mentor and friend, I'm particularly thrilled to have you here. So you have spent most of your career trying to make care accessible and meaningful to people and striving to scale innovation. Where did that drive come from? I really think it was inherited. My grandparents, my parents, even my brother and sister, we all carry whatever that gene is. My grandparents worked with USAID and UNESCO all over the world, and my mom was an advisor to a governor for health 20 years before I was an advisor and then a commissioner of health. So it really ran down through the family. Unlike your parents, who started in healthcare, you went off to take a different path. You went to Berkeley. Go Bears. Yeah, exactly. And got a political science <laughs> degree, well like myself. <laughs> um, and then went off to Asia to learn Chinese and, and take a side trip to volunteer in the Vietnam War. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I really wanted to figure out, how do you make change? Mm-hmm. And so that was poli-sci. And I was particularly interested in China and Asia. And so I went out and studied in Hong Kong and, and in Taiwan for three years. During that time, I went down to Vietnam twice, first wow. as a correspondent, and then the second time to volunteer in a hospital that the Quakers ran that was uh, helping napalm victims. 
So how did that, did that does that what spurred your career to start back into medicine, join the family no. business? No, as a matter of fact, it was quite terrifying to me to see <laughs> trying to help these victims yeah. was really something. No, that came later. It was really when I came back and I did a master's in Chinese history. I was still intent on being a foreign correspondent. And I began to think that I really wanted to bring about change in my own society rather than watch another society. And so that's what made me turn towards the United States. And every time I spoke about China, people were really interested in the idea of community control of their health. And um, so, you know, the sort of barefoot doctor idea, Uh here would be family medicine in a sense, or community health workers. So that's really what drove me. So you went to Johns Hopkins, and then you went straight into the public health realm at San Francisco General, kind of the belly of the beast. Um, What attracted you to that locale? What was it that made that a good match for you at the time? Well, first of all, I had gone to Cal. (laughs) So so I knew it was a great place to come back to. But I also, at that point, I was fluent. Was Baltimore not gritty enough? (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But I spoke, I was fluent in Chinese and Spanish, and I wanted a city where there was a very big population that I could work with. So that's really New York or San Francisco. And Mm. I already had lived in California. I was pretty oriented to that. So I loved it. I mean, when I was doing family medicine internship, whenever they had a woman in labor who spoke Chinese and often Spanish, there just weren't doctors that spoke those languages. So they would call me wherever in the house I was. Wow. wow. That's amazing. I mean, it's still a problem, I think. You know, Very yeah, serious issue, yeah. So you never strayed far from public health um, and, in fact, were instrumental in some of the first work in Silicon Valley to identify the impact of semiconductor chemicals on workers in, in the companies that were you know, starting up around here. What was that like? Well, it was fascinating because it was both science and the sort of desire to help people mm-hmm. because nobody really knew what this was. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, of course, to be enormously complex because the chemicals used were changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was very hard to do a one-to-one kind of correspondence. I went on to work with farm workers on pesticide poisoning through Centers for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. And that was a very similar kind of thing. Sometimes you wouldn't know what had been sprayed on them. Mm -hmm. This was sort of like, you know, epi medical detective, Burton Ruscha stuff? Very much. So that experience, um, you know, traveling around looking at the pesticides impact on people led you to Hawaii where you discovered your favorite pastime, right? <laughs> well, that was scuba diving. Yeah, I was I was working very hard in Hawaii uh, <laughs> in epidemiology. We were studying the effect of a pesticide. That is a good gig. We got to figure that one out <laughs> yeah, for really. ourselves. But uh, that's also I I had grown up sailing and I loved the water. And for the first time, I got a chance to scuba dive, and I got my cert- certificate. And I've done more than five hundred dives, and it's a real passion. What's the coolest thing you ever saw? Oh, um, most I just have to say most recently because there's too many wonderful things. But last fall I was diving in Thailand in the Andaman Seas, and near Surin Island we saw a convention of cuttlefish, just fabulous, gorgeous, flashing all these colors. Yeah, they're like electric, right? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Have you ever had any close encounters while scuba diving? Well, reef sharks diving right next to us, that kind of thing, yeah. But um, <laughs> so frankly, you don't... <laughs> I guess. But frankly, most of the time you don't get too scared. You know, you know how to protect yourself and how to judge things. So I, I generally find I'm just, more scared of my own stupidity <laughs> or another diver's stupidity than of the wildlife. 
So you eventually left that work and practice, and you were recruited to become a government official in the 80s, first in New Jersey as advisor to Governor Kane, uh, and then as uh, New Jersey Commissioner of Health. And then a decade later, you returned to government as California Director of the Department of Health, I believe. And you said that government is a place where you can actually make the largest impact at scale, which is a different thought than I've heard before. I know, I know. Well, you know, there obviously are huge challenges for anyone going into political life today, whether you're a candidate or working as a head of a large agency. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, people who work at the head of large agencies, like I did, are political appointees. They're usually not people who came up through civil service. Right. And um, it really, it's, it's very much about leadership. It depends on who you're working with and for. And the leadership, not only of the governor, but the legislature. Uh -huh. But if when you're in a good place, as most of the time in New Jersey and in the early days in California, you can really put your hands on the levers of change. You can really make a difference. And I just give one example. We took the California Medicaid program, Medi-Cal, which had a budget then of $18 billion, which was real money, and we took that into managed care. We were one of the first states um, to do that. And we used to say that for the pregnant women covered by Medi-Cal, getting a Medi-Cal card was getting a hunting license mm. to try to find an OB who would actually care for them. Mm. When we flipped the switch and made it a full-risk contract, then all of a sudden people were falling all over themselves to serve that population because they knew that it was expensive because they were getting very fragmented care, it wasn't well coordinated, it wasn't well done. So those changes really helped people. What do you know? Follow the money. Um, yeah, exactly. So exactly. you left government, though, with all that ability to leverage scale and, and resources. What caused you to walk away? Well, as I said, it's all about leadership. Mm -hmm. And we reached a moment in uh, about 93 in California where the administration then came out with a policy asking doctors and hospitals to turn in undocumented immigrants when they presented for care. And I had been fighting that internally, and when it was, that was the decision to go forward with that, I couldn't support it. It's against the Hippocratic Oath to start with, on top of which not being, making sense from a public health or a medical point of view. Yeah, that sounds shocking to me. Well, well they're doing it now. Again, it's, it's coming back. In health care? Yeah. There's proposing it in various places. And in San Diego County, before I resigned, I resigned four days after the governor made that announcement, but in San Diego County, they had already started to put up signs in the emergency rooms, watch out La Migra, we're gonna turn you over to the La Migra. So- um, It's shocking. I mean, I know this has been a big theme for you, this whole area of cultural participation in healthcare, and you're actively engaged today with a company, Consejo Sano, for instance, that is very much focused on this issue. We had Abner on the show. That was fantastic. Oh, that's uh, right, yeah. Months ago. Tell us about that. What, what struck a chord with you there? Well, you know, when I was a director of the health department in California and we took Medicaid into managed care, we figured out that one of the best tools that we had that people hadn't had before was the contract with managed care plans. And we could require cultural competence. And so we actually instituted a clause that said you had to have people on the other end of the phone who spoke the same language as your members did. Right. What a concept. Yeah, really. This is the early 90s. And in the late 90s, 
a consulting group that I was affiliated with got money to come in and look at what had the consequences of that been. Mm -hmm. And basically, the report from the plans was that got us going on the squadrons of people. So now today, plans do have mm -hmm. people speaking Spanish and to some extent Chinese or, or whatever else. Yeah. Why wasn't that obvious to people, do you think? I think it, people do what they... Discrimination. <laughs> no, 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 but, but, but sometimes no. you don't attribute, attribute to malice what can be sort of to incompetence. I'm it's, it's just, I think it's really ignorance, and there was nothing that forced the question. People, if you don't live or work with people whose lives are adversely affected, you don't realize how much harm this is doing. You just think you're running a very effective business operation. Because I think this comes up a lot, even in the conversations mm -hmm. we have where... You know, people are like, well, the system's working, and, you know, you're trying to, you know, you sort of, you don't see what you don't see. Exactly. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. And I think, so you don't have to attribute malice, even though society is rife with it, <laughs> but um, you don't have to attribute malice at all. It's simply that the inertia of most organizations is to continue doing what they do. And I think that, for example, the work, the work that Alex Drain is doing on loneliness and Charlotte Ye and a number of other people is revolutionary. We had Alex on the show, too. Yeah, yeah because it brings to everyone's attention something that otherwise they wouldn't know. And so cultural competence emerged in healthcare as an issue in the early 90s in the yeah. same way. So you were uh, incredibly ahead of your time in thinking about tech. You had a computer in the 1970s. I think I thought people were still using um, Abakai then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, you worked for the CDC, and you carried around this massive portable Computer. It was the Osborne. It was the first portable, I wouldn't call it a laptop because it was, <laughs> I don't know, like a foot and a half by two feet high and plastic case and everything, but I would carry it on these little puddle jumper planes out to Yuma, Arizona, so I could go up in the helicopters and watch the spraying of the pesticides and all. And time after time, guys would literally pat me on the head and say, I love to see a little lady traveling with her sewing machine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so how did you get to the idea that tech like that would change treatment or could be used to make a difference in, in care? I think, um, it, you know, even if I was somewhat early, I was still standing on the shoulders of giants. People like Larry Weed, very early on, did lots of demonstrations of how powerful computers could be in contributing to decision mm -hmm. support. He used to run bake-offs against physicians, and the physicians were not too happy when the computer, you know, sometimes won. Well, that's changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I think it was the combination of the interest in, it, in technology in every sector. So in the early 90s, when I was with the state, we were already ordering our groceries with Peapot. Huh. So it, just like the rest of the consumers in the world, it was what was happening to banking, to retail, right. to food purchasing, everything. And you started to think, well, you know, how do you crosswalk this? Yeah. Why do you think it's been so challenging to introduce? I mean, you've been doing this, I would say, since before the beginning, apparently, with the, the Osborne. Um, why do you, you know, and, and with the deep experience in healthcare, with the global experience, I mean, you're almost uniquely s situated to answer the question of um, 
why has uh, it been so difficult to bring some of these technological advances into healthcare? All right. I think what people would expect me to say is that it's the culture, reimbursement, structure, fragmentation, et cetera, of the healthcare system. And that is probably the major reason. And I almost feel like I don't have to run on about that because we all know it's just this unwieldy system designed to produce what we have now. And it's really hard to bring about organizational change. But to be fair, I think that technology was too early in some of these cases, too. Mm -hmm. That what worked with lots of support and a lot of human effort to make sure that it could work in a particular situation today can truly work remotely with a very light touch. So we are capable of doing things today, and the design of this has become much less clunky because of design thinking. I mean, when you put together something for patients to use, we did that in 95 at HealthDesk. We wrote the first software for browser-based self-management by patients Mm -hmm. of diabetes. Mm -hmm. But if you went back and looked at that now in terms of ease of use compared to... Did you get people to use it? Oh, yeah. Oh, they loved it. Really? We couldn't get it away from them. But it must have been kind of exotic, too, right? Yeah, but it was, I mean, frankly, most of these, we focused initially on type 1 diabetes with half a million dollars from the American College of Endocrinology. Mm-hmm. And we were working with women, mostly in the Sacramento area, and these are working class women. They didn't see it as exotic or care about it being exotic. What they needed was help. And so they were just absolutely grateful for that. And we also enabled them to get together in groups. Mm -hmm. So it was a peer-to-peer support activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was your first kind of entrepreneurial experience, right? Yes. How was that different culturally for you from working in the government (laughs) or working in the provider system? Right, right. And yes, because I had, in between government and doing that, I had worked uh, down in San Jose uh, for a four-hospital system as EVP. And we actually, again, disruption, we... It was the first time to sell a nonprofit hospital to a for-profit chain in wow. California. So, but we created a ninety million dollar endowment for a local foundation, mm-hmm. and I still think it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so I, I really thought, okay, I have tried the government route, and I liked it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it doesn't work, but I did a fair amount of that. I worked with a delivery system, and really the tool there was when the delivery system held risk. We had, and this was very early on, we had 100,000 full-risk capitation managed care lives. And what you could do in that setting was so much more fulfilling and wonderful than what you could do if you were just battling it out with the medical staff, sort of, you know, bunker by bunker, um, was very telling. And then um, I really saw the option for technology. And once I started working in that in about 95, 96, I kind of never looked back. Hmm. That's really been the most exciting focus for me in the last 20 years or so. So you went from there. I mean, that was a successful company, sort of in the Internet go-go days. And then you went from there uh, and started health tech, right? And so health tech was sort of the Avia of its time, Mm -hmm. the, you know, Avia Part A kind of thing, helping health systems understand technology I mean, talk about, you know, ahead of its time. I mean, now they're barely even figuring it out. What was that like? (laughs) How did you get them to even join and support this endeavor? Well, actually, we did market research. Uh And in the late 90s, it turned out that enough of hospital leadership understood, again, because of other sectors, not because of what was happening in healthcare. They understood that this was coming and they were not prepared. 
So they gave us pretty big chunks of money into a pooled research. This was a nonprofit from 2000 to 2010. And we had, in the end, 25% of hospital capacity in the whole country as members, with only about 45 members. So these are really big systems. Mm. And I would say that the first third of that time was an aspirational join. In other words, they knew they needed to learn about this. They weren't sure what they wanted to do. By the time we hit the middle third of it, they were kind of realizing this is pretty serious. We've mm. got to actually start incorporating this into our facility planning, workforce mm -hmm. planning, et cetera. And by the end of the 2000s, they were saying, okay, we're ready. And But at that point, they don't have the capability to stand mm -hmm. these things up, or they didn't then. Right. And so they wanted us to become a big consulting firm, essentially, come in-house with right. squadrons of people. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. So we merged with another nonprofit, and I went to UCLA to be chief innovation officer. So that must have been interesting. Was it like 10 years between UCLA and Good Sam, maybe? Uh, no, more 15. 15. Yeah. So Good Sam was the earlier yeah. hospital you'd been at. UCLA, yeah. you know, it's 15 years later. A lot had changed, right? Mm -hmm. The internet had come to be, Rob, you know, uh, uh, Al Gore had invented the internet. <laughs> um, we found, you know, ourselves right. looking at technology seriously by the time you went to UCLA. Mm -hmm. Was it a different experience there, or was the resistance, you know, to a, adoption still there? I think I think that the it was very different, but it was a growing chasm between faculty who really thought this was still peripheral, mm -hmm. that they could avoid it, live out their careers, mm -hmm. that their patients wouldn't want this, mm -hmm. and a growing number of younger faculty and and. You know, to be fair, some older faculty who always had wanted to try and bring about this mm. kind of change at scale. And so there was a lot of support and a lot of interest, but I think we accomplished much less than we could have because the most powerful faculty in some cases were pretty opposed. Um, I, I guess that's sort of two of the interesting challenges are one, um, well, let me focus on what I think is, I guess, is maybe the biggest challenge is. When you're part of the system, you're still responding to the sort of the incentives that are sort of pre-existing. I, I would imagine that having been in government, which in effect set some of the incentives, it, it seems even from what you're describing that that was the biggest driver of change is sort of how the incentives are structured. Is it difficult to then be, you know, to essentially be in a role of responding to incentives versus sort of creating them? That's absolutely a, a great insight and really true. And so that's why you see a lot of delivery systems trying to figure out how they can get in on the premium dollar, how they can actually hold risk, mm -hmm. right. because it is much easier. I mean, physicians who think that they're opposed to a lot of technology, once they have a different cultural bedrock kind of and financial incentive, become very interested in it. And I would talk to them about having panel sizes. They had panel sizes of, you know, 1,500, 2,000 or something. And talking about the future, within five years, they might have a panel size of 10,000 or 15,000 with a squadron of community health workers, mm -hmm. nurse practitioners, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of virtual care. Mm -hmm. Well, it's only five years later, and 60% of Kaiser's care now is virtual. 
I mean, it's like on a macro level, it feels like nothing changes. It feels like people still get sick the same. It's getting worse. The costs are still rising. You know, all that, you know. And the experience of being sick is, is still stinks. Sucks, I mean, if you know yeah. anybody yeah, who's ever sucks. had anything, yeah. you know, I mean, the stories are, you know, every every physician I know yeah. has blogged about their crappy experience of being sick exactly. or their relative's crappy experience. Including me, the non-physician. <laughs> but um, the on the micro level, yeah. there's massive change going on, I think, and yeah. just sort of the shifting financial incentives, the the telemedicine coming to bear in a real way, these integrated systems, et cetera. I also wanted to get one of the things you were asking about, or you, you, you were discussing where you were talking about the people who wanted change, it, sort of like the people who wanted to embrace the technology and versus the, the older people, let's say, who didn't. Would another framing of it be that um, some of the more experienced people may have been through a bunch of rounds of um, people proposing this great solution, that solution, and in fact, there's a certain degree of wisdom where every new thing that's promised, all the new tech isn't as transformative as, as it's presented and isn't going to save things the way some of the young hopeful people may think. How do you crosswalk that? Well, gee, I thought you were brilliant before, but now I, I'm not so clear because, <laughs> because the truth is that... She most, should have warned you before the interview began. <laughs> the truth is that most of the people who were in opposition hadn't seen lots of technologies come forward and fail. I mean, they might have seen clinical ones like devices, catheters, but not the kind of digital-enabled solutions. On the other hand, it is true that there is this onslaught of digital innovations now. So let's define what we're talking about is really digitally enabled health IT and services. So some of these are true just technologies and others are really care models or service models enabled by technology. But um, in that case, that's why we created Health Tech originally, and that's why Avi is very successful today, is because a fair number of health systems say we're better off pooling our work in this area. Do you want to say what Avia is? Yeah, Avia is a pooled research network of big delivery systems, although now we have some medium and small ones joining as well that want to work together to figure out what technologies are going to work for the real strategic challenges that they face, mm -hmm. and then how can they get them up and implemented and scaled within a short number of years. So how is this? So now it's like health tech redux, right? Yeah. You're back at it. Is it different now? Oh, it is really different because almost every health system now has had some experience with trying one of these. And this is where your point, David, comes in, that basically they've tried it, they've done pilots after pilots, they've had pilotitis, they were never able to scale any of them. So at this point, they're sort of crying uncle and saying, look, we need to be really sure that what we do is worth the lift. Yeah. And we need to be sure that if we do a pilot, people even stop using the word pilot, it is en route to actual full Amelia implementation. <laughs> yeah. That, that you really are building into your budget and your HR plans and everything, the full rollout this with the expectation it will be successful and you're gonna have to tinker the first rollout, you'll learn things, et cetera. But it is a very different experience. So within Avia, for example, we have user groups for the different solutions that groups of our members have adopted somewhat like the EHR companies mm -hmm. organize. And so they can work together. We have CIO councils and legal councils so that we can template and sort of 
set out a roadmap that gets them faster from A to B. Do you try to make the connections? Because I know you've written about pilot fatigue. Mm. I think that was actually um, uh, the topic. And trying to figure out how, you know, the other thing um, Lisa's recently blogged about is that how there are just so many companies in this space. Um, there's an overwhelming number. And so how do you figure out, you know, you, on the one hand, you can say, well, there are too many pilots. But how do you figure out what to advance without the pilots? Yeah. yeah. Well, there was a really interesting article um, just a, a, maybe a week ago by Christina Farr at CNBC sure. talking about Medicaid as the hotbed mm-hmm. for innovation. Yeah. And here it is full circle. Mm-hmm. You know, Medicaid, the, and, and I'm spending about 80% of my time on Medicaid in terms of what are the digital solutions that could contribute to the right. changes we need. Well, she was talking about how a lot of the um, focus is increasingly on sort of the most needy patients. They talked about my friend Rashika's company. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A GE Ventures Investment. Oh, good for oh, you guys. Oh, is it? Rashika's a great guy. He's a great guy. But it, so I, I agree. That it does seem encouraging. Yeah, so... I think it's also really interesting that you spent 15 years on the Aetna board, which is about to come to an end, most likely. Um, and you've seen that through the, you know, sort of the throes of the fee-for-service world all the way to now with their potential merger with CBS and this massive change in that whole delivery system area that we've talked about. What does that all mean to you? What is, what is most interesting about this transition that you can talk about? Well, um, first of all, I will be very careful. I'm, everything I say has been publicly said. But, <laughs> um, but it's been a wonderful experience, really, really terrific, because from the time of Jack Rowe when I was recruited to the board, mm-hmm. Aetna has been very innovative and on the cutting edge on a lot of changes. So even though it is everything we know, a large corporation with all those challenges, there have been a series of changes over those 15 years that I have felt was really positive. So we started as an insurance company. Mm-hmm. We realized there was really no, that this was a commodity. There was no future in underwriting as your principal contribution to society. Right, right. And so then we defined ourselves as principally an information company, that we would hold all this information. It could be used mm-hmm. in good ways. And so we were widely recognized as the most advanced for quite a number of years among the big plans in terms of our IT capability. And then we began to understand new ways of working with the delivery systems. Mm -hmm. And that was our ACO program that's been going for eight years now, where we see huge improvements. And now it's this idea of take care to the community and really be local-based and meet patients in their home and help them stay healthy, whatever their condition, however severe it is, help them stay so healthy they don't have to go to the doctor or the hospital any more than is appropriate for their condition. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here since we're coming to the end of our show, but I know you're a huge music lover, especially jazz and and some rock, and a board member of the SF Jazz, and and you see nearly as many concerts as I do. And you told me your favorite song is the Talking Heads' Cross-Eyed and Painless. favorite line is, facts all come with points of view, facts don't do what I want them to. What is it about that line that speaks to you? Oh, it's just that every time you honestly ask questions 
of patients, of anyone. You find out things you didn't expect, and sometimes it turns you around. Mm, interesting. Very good. So you've been at this healthcare thing for a while. Um, what gives you hope that that the change will actually come, the change you've been trying to find Great will question. actually come? Because I see it actually happening. It is so exciting when you see people who had no access to behavioral health actually saying, this is helping me. And it's spreading in, in six months, four big health systems picking that up. So I actually think the consumers are going to be the demand force because as soon as your sister, your mother, your friend has had this kind of help, they don't want to go back. Yeah. What's the, exa- I'm sorry. Oh, What's gonna... the example you're thinking of that works, the behavioral intervention or the behavioral well, approach you're this thinking is, of? Yeah, this is cognitive behavioral therapy. The sure, company, CBT. I'm just as an example, is Silver Cloud out of the U.K., but now in the U.S. And this has been a technology that's been around for 15 years mm-hmm. using a cognitive behavioral therapy. And finally, the technology is here to make it really easy for the patients so they can do this. And is it self-administered or is it sort of coached? Yeah, no, it's self-administered. And, and people do it? A, yeah, yeah. And about 40%. So CBT as a service, basically? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. <laughs> we can Now we can, after the radiologist, we can put all the psychologists. And all I can say is that's just the beginning. There are so many right now out there that are really worthwhile. So um, what is the one thing that you hope to achieve in the remainder of your career? I hope that we will be able to build uh, an understanding in the country that it's possible to make care affordable and good as an experience as well as outcomes for people with any level of resources. And that's why I'm spending my time on Medicaid. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Molly, for being here today. Great. Today's guest, Molly Coy, was speaking to us from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. What a guest, eh? So inspiring. That was incredibly interesting. Um, It's remarkable to have such an impact across so many different domains. I I think most of us would be happy to have an impact in any one. And to be able to both be in so many areas and to be ahead of the curve so often, it's remarkable. Yeah, I know. It's what makes her particularly special, I think, actually. You can follow Lisa Sunan at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. As we roll out, we're going to play a sample from Alfredo Rodriguez's piece called Raices, which is Molly's other favorite piece of music. It's beautiful. It's really gorgeous. And it's also accessible. Some jazz isn't necessarily. Rodriguez is a fabulous pianist, and Richard Bona is this incredible vocalist from Cameroon. Just um, so the combination and watching them on the YouTube video, watching them play to and for each other and with each other is a wonderful experience. Can 